You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to The Worship Review, a podcast which carefully and critically evaluates Christian music. My name is Tyler, a linguist and former worship leader, and I'm joined, as ever, by Colin. Hello, I'm Colin. I'm a history professor, former worship leader as well, and friend of Tyler. Indeed. We are looking at the listenership of this show and trying to figure out what songs are prominent and popular in the countries which happen to listen to this podcast. Today's episode is about Canada, and it turns out that currently in Canada, trending is a song by Phil Wickham, whom we have seen before on this series, called Hymn of Heaven. Didn't we see him in basically the same outfit? Yes, and and the same haircut and everything. Yeah. 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 The guy, he opens his closet, and it's all white shirts and skinny jeans. Although, I will save this for the very end, because it's relevant, but there is something unique about this outfit. Okay. So, um, a few fun facts about Canada, Colin, if you're interested. Yeah, I'd I don't love know. to learn about this country. Have you ever heard of this country? Uh, not until very recently. No, yeah. didn't know it existed. Yeah, so they, they have a maple leaf on their flag. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. I thought it was a different kind of leaf. Yeah, not an oak leaf, but a maple leaf. And uh, these, uh, the men and women of Canada particularly enjoy the sport of ice hockey. So it's a rather cold country in the north, but uh, it's the world's second largest country by land. In terms of land Yeah, by land area. So it covers 3.85 million square miles. Very large country. Uh, Leifer Eriksson was the first... European to set foot in North America and landed in Canada, he was not the first to spot it, not the first European to spot it. The first European to spot North America saw the coast of Canada, and his name was Bjarni Herjolfsson, and he was traveling from Iceland looking for his father, whom he had heard had traveled to Greenland. And Bad weather blew him off course. You can read about this in the saga of the Greenlanders. Um, Bad weather blew him off course. He ends up off of the coast of a new land that he had not seen before and no one had told him about. And curiously, it had a lot of vegetation, a lot of trees, and it was very green. And his crew wanted to go check it out. But he wanted to go see his dad. He was a very honorable man, and he said, we're not stopping this boat. Kind of like a mom when she's angry at her children. We are not stopping this boat until we get to see uh, my father. So uh, he named the places that he saw, realized that he had blown west of his course, course corrected, headed to Greenland, and uh, shared with the people there that he had seen a new country to the west, and a very entrepreneurial young man named Life or Leif Erikson, who realized that Greenland had almost entirely exhausted the trees that they had for lumber, thought, I could make a killing if I go west, get some trees, and bring them back. So he bought Bjarni's ship, hired a crew, and went west. Okay. Um, So not a lot of people know 
that Leaf was not the first to spot it. Um, Canada is also the world's largest producer of uranium, all of which is produced in Saskatchewan. Would not have known that either. It's, it's one of the few countries in the world which is a net exporter of energy, not a net importer. So Good for those Canadians. On to Phil Wickham's song. Yes. Colin, what's going on in this song? Uh, what's it about? Yeah, I think this is a song that is about a person who is excited that one day they're going to see Jesus Christ uh, in heaven, and they're going to worship him. And on that day, kind of all of the difficulties that they've been through are going to be worth it, because they're going to be with God. But also, at the same time, they want to kind of sing about God now, too. Yes. So, in fact, they probably want to sing more ferociously about God now, and because they're just so excited about what's going to happen. Anything you'd add to that? The song itself is about someone who is eager to be in heaven with the Savior yeah. and uh, sing and pray there. Um, yeah. It, even looking toward the resurrection to come specifically. Yep. So, Colin, let's look at the text. How I long to breathe the air of heaven Where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets To look upon the one who bled to save me And walk with him for all eternity. How I long to breathe the air of heaven, where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets, to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. All right, so this opens up with a huge theological and eschatological conundrum. Will there be air in heaven? Will we actually need to breathe air in heaven? We'll have lungs. Sure. In um, our glorified bodies. Do yeah, we need but oxygen? do we actually like need, like, is there going to be just the right mix in the kind of new heavens and new earth? I don't know. It just made me think about that because he says, how long, how I long to breathe the air of heaven. And I thought that is a different way to think about that. Like heaven being almost a new country, I guess. Like, but also a maybe. New earth. Yeah. But also maybe like a homeland, right? To, to Oh, man, you know, you're away from somewhere and you're like, oh, how I long to just go back and breathe the air, right? Because you, you smell the air. Like like when I'm... Um, the air on the English countryside. It's right. It's the most beautiful air in the world. Like there, yeah. there are times when I've gone back to my old hometown and if I go back and it's kind of late summer, early autumn, and like there's the, the grass has just been kind of cut for the last time and I can smell it. And it, it has, it's like the smell of football practice and going back to school. And I don't know. So like maybe that's the way that, that Wickham means this is that heaven is our home. And so he's just, he's not literally saying that 
he's not actually trying to answer a question about whether there's air in heaven. He's just trying to say, heaven will be familiar to me. Mm. Like, interesting. Yeah, I'm like not that. taking it that way. Uh, I, my first comment as I was looking at these lyrics was, does breathe the air of mean be in? Because it seems like the rest of the song is describing what heaven is going to be like. And yeah. So he's saying how long to be in heaven. Um, but it's a, it's a more poetic way of communicating that, I think. Yeah, and I suppose that's what, that this will be par for the course in the song, from my view, is... How can I say be in, in the yeah, most ornate way possible? Exactly. So to compare it, just to contrast with the song that we just did last week, which is very plainly spoken, I couldn't help but think of a contrast with this song, which is there's, there's just constantly, these constant aims in this song to just try to say something poetic and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't so like the next line where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets now that sounds poetic i guess is maybe just the only thing i can say but what does it mean that mercy fills the streets yeah this what, is is, what does that you mean you can't take it literally because if you take it literally it doesn't make sense but the the sentiment communicated is no pain yes mercy Right. right, but but the, but if you actually look at it and unpack it, okay, pain is gone. That's fine. We've gotten rid of pain, um, and mercy. Okay, what fills the streets? It can be water. Maybe if there's a flood of, like a flood is mercy rains. Maybe if there's a flood of water, it fills the streets. Uh, but vendors fill the streets in a big marketplace. Maybe yeah. people fill the streets. So mercy is um, overflowing into the streets. Maybe here. Um, but it, it's not clear what's literally meant, but what is, um, the, the content of this sentence, even if it's individual constituents can't be, yeah. uh, pieced apart is yeah. mercy. Good. <laughs> yeah. Pain, bad mercy. Good. No pain. We will have yes. Mercy. We will have yeah. sort of, yes. No, you're right. It's, but it's just like, I don't know why, why say it that way? Sure. You know? And I think, I think it's deriving this from Revelation 21, yeah, 4, sure. right? Uh, he will wipe away every tear from their better. eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, that's quite clear. Yeah, and there are other references in the song to yes. that. So, so you can see where he's going. The tears right? thing yeah, comes up right. later. Yeah, So, fine. I don't know. <laughs> okay, to look upon the one who bled to save me, so... I like this because, again, as I've said previously, we're often introduced to the problem in the first verse. The problem is that this person needs saving, mm -hmm. and the main focus is the one who bled. Yes. So, the kind of minimal part of this is, I needed saving, but really I want you to notice that we get to look at the one who bled to save me. So, Bleeding, of course, good reference to the cross of Christ. And we don't have Christ being named in this first verse, at least, but you have an impression that we're talking about Christ and also, you know, spiritual things like heaven. So even though it's a little vague and poetically clunky, you do have a sense in here that, you know, you have a sense in this song of the gospel or at least a hint of the gospel, a, a, a kind of gospel spices. 
in this verse. This soup tastes like it's been seasoned with yes. gospel. I find it interesting that he decides to focus on Christ bleeding to save him, because often the sentiment is, he died to save me, right? Jesus died my soul to save. Yeah. And in this song, he's focusing on Christ bleeding, mm. which I like because it it harkens back to um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where we learn about how the blood of animals can purify and make clean. Uh, and, and obviously, we've talked about this passage many times before, but in Hebrews 9, this is unpacked more fully, how the blood of Christ surpasses these former things in being able to purify our consciences. And then the an- another sentiment that I think harkens to other Christian music is this idea of walking with him yeah. for eternity. We've seen that on the, In the garden show before, yeah. <clears throat> so we will get a kind of uh, intimate companionship with him. He will join us on walks. And that's another uh, theme in this song is intimacy with God. And you have it too on looking upon the one. So there's a sense of personal um, nearness, right? You can actually see God as well and walk with him. Yeah, the other thing I'll say, you mentioned the bleeding part. I like that too, because it's it doesn't just make the cross of Christ an abstraction. Like there was bleeding, like it was gory. You know, it was it was a real thing in a way. So I like him saying blood. Yes, because we've seen in the past, people say he passed through shadow to yeah. life. That is way different than right, he passed right. through bloody, excruciating right. death to life. Very, very different there. There will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with he who died and rose again. Holy, holy is the Lord. The chorus of this song is, there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more, standing face to face with he who died and rose again. Holy, holy is the Lord. So again, we have hints that this is talking about God and Christ. Certainly you can't, there's enough here that you can't say that it's somebody else. At the same time, we don't have like an actual naming of God or Christ, but we know it's we know it's Christ because... We know that um, he died and rose again. So if we put that together with things like he bled to save me, um, we we can assume that he's talking about Christ. Now he's and in, you know he, he's singing the first line of this. There will be a day when all bow before him, almost as a kind of triumphant, like we're all going to be excited to bow before him. And that may be true, but of course, the real meaning of that line in Scripture is given to us in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, and it is being, it is being made to bow at the judgment. This is actually a line that references judgment. So, verse 10 of Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, 
as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Uh, And then Paul finishes by saying, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That paints a slightly different picture of there will be a day when all will bow before him. Because in the context of the song, it's it, the song is all about like the positive, you know, this is intimacy with God, this is relationship with God, this is seeing God. These are all like really kind of sentimental, um, r- wonderful, yes. touching moments with God. And it sticks, all will bow before him within that context, but that is not yeah. that is not really appropriate. And when I when I read this, I actually thought the timeline was either confused or he's deliberately jumping between timelines because we go from being in heaven with him to then going back to the judgment day. And and that was confusing to me. But then I thought perhaps perhaps he's just talking about bowing before him in worship, like all of heaven is bowing before him in worship. Um but that's not how typically the word all is used, yeah. right? We when we say all that inclu- that's a universal quantifier. It includes um, everyone. And it, again, it's confused because then we have, there's a day when death will be no more. But at, at the day of judgment, death is yet to be yeah. cast into the lake of fire, right. so to speak, right? So right. we, it, it's a little bit confused um, to, to, to my reading. Um, but these are in some sense scriptural promises right we talked about in revelation yeah. this promise and and also hearkening back to isaiah 25 8 he will swallow up death forever and the lord god will wipe away tears from all faces so uh, i think that's what's going on but again as you've said if we talk about what things are like in heaven uh that's fine that's good and we should do that but then do we then jump back to um what the judgment day is going to be like I don't think so, but I don't even know if that's what he has intended to do. It's unclear. I know I, I once heard Bob Coughlin say in a in a teaching kind of about being careful about the songs that you pick. He was saying how like he used to sing this song, which really kind of triumphantly and almost joyously sung the line "Sound a trumpet in Zion," and he sung this song for years, and then realized that oh my goodness, like this is about God's judgment. Like this is about this is not. This doesn't appear in scripture in the way that I'm using it now. And so you just shared that story as a way of saying, like, you know, just because something's in the Bible, like the Bible has contexts, and you can't just take things out of the Bible, stick them in a song, and give it their give them their own meaning, you know, or, or kind of change their meaning. And again, we just don't know what Phil Wickham is kind of thinking. We don't know what's in his head, but just. We don't really have to. I mean, just taking the song in context and then putting this line, it's, it is out of place. It's just an out of place line. Unless he wants to spend some time talking about judgment, there's nothing wrong doing that in a song. Could probably use more songs that talk about judgment. Um, but it, it, it's he, he kind of seems to be giving this a, a sentiment by way of context, which just doesn't, doesn't quite line up. Although the other bits in this verse... I really like. So, um, standing face to face with he who died and rose again. I mean, I like, it's it's good and right to talk about intimacy with God in heaven. Revelation has many statements about 
intimacy with God, you know, him giving us a name and him wiping, and we'll get to this, him wiping away our tears, you know, being in his presence. I mean, there's, there's just a lot there. And even his line at the end, holy, holy is the Lord. This is an appropriate thing to put in a song like this because this is the thing that is sung in Revelation, although three yes. holies, but, yeah. but, you know. But it's important that you're persnickety about that because the thrice holy thing is a big deal. Yeah. If, if you repeat things three times, it's a massive intensifier. Um, I, I want to read a, a passage from Revelation 20 because it ties together these ideas that are kind of loosely linked in this verse. Uh, and it, it gives us some context of what uh, what Revelation 20 is about. And it's not all about walking happily with sure. Jesus. So uh, I'm just going to read 11 to 15. This is the end of the chapter. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the thrones, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Boom. Yeah. Not so, all uh, rainbows and, and sunshine. Yeah. Yeah. Very. It's a, it's a grave passage, and I yeah. think we should treat it with gravity. Verse 2. And if we pray, we pray in desperation, the songs of faith. Every prayer we prayed in desperation, the songs of faith we sang through doubt and fear. In the end, we'll see that it was worth it when he returns to wipe away our tears. I, uh, I'm not a fan of this verse. <laughs> so, uh, okay. The idea... What's the matter, Call? Do you not pray every prayer in desperation? Okay. Yeah. So the idea overall here is really troubling, which is w- what's going to happen when we get to heaven? Okay, yeah, yeah, we're going to be in God's presence, and that's going to be pretty awesome, and okay. But what we're also going to do is we're going to think back on all of our work. We're going to think back of the prayers we prayed, and we're going to think back of the songs we sung, and we're going to just think back at the hard stuff we went through, and we're just going to be like, yeah, I'm glad we did all that, because we made it, you know? it's it's Look, it was worth it. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's like, I wasn't sure it was worth it then, but but, now I'm pretty convinced. And it's it's just so self-focused, right? It's like, like, we're the ones that are pulling the weight in the Christian life, right? Like, we're the ones that are truly suffering. Like, look at, look at all, look at all the suffering. We had to pray, we were desperate, and we sang all these songs, and... Man, we were we were doubting and we were fearful, but you know, thank goodness we did this work. Um, but you know, we aren't the ones who suffered, right? And it's kind of offensive to say that we are, especially to kind of talk about to talk about the things, the means of of spiritual edification and grace that God gives us, like prayer and worship, to talk about those things as almost like burdens. I think is is really offensive. Like Christ suffered, um, 
Christ is praying on our behalf. That's what makes it worth it. Not that we're praying. Um, Christ was in desperation on the cross. Our desperation in our prayer pales in comparison to Christ in the garden, right? That's desperation, not our prayers. Um, Christ was faithful, right? Christ was the one who endured to the end. We, we, we aren't faithful. Um, Christ was the one who obeyed the Father, not us. Um, Christ was the one who endured temptation, like Christ was in, in the desert for 40 days, enduring temptation. And Phil Wickham wants to say like, oh man, well, you know, we sung songs of faith through doubt and fear, and this makes it worth it. It's like, we are not going to be in heaven looking back on our works and praising them, looking back on our suffering and praising them. No, um, we're going to be looking at the suffering of Christ. We know that because of what is sung in heaven. The, this, one of the songs in heaven is all about Christ redeeming us, right? Christ saving us. Um, the focus in heaven is on Christ as the, one of the focuses on heaven is on Christ as the lamb who bled. Um, like, we are not going to be looking back at ourselves. And I think it's just obscene to suggest this. I really don't like this verse. Thoughts? No, I, I, I would agree with you. And it is surprising to me with the level of detail that they paid to, or the level of attention that they paid to making sure that things sounded ornate and flowery, that they didn't pay attention to simple things like grammar. Here, I'll give you two examples. So here's the first one. And every prayer we prayed in desperation. There's a comma in the, in the text that I have here, which separates prayer and we. So end every prayer, comma, we prayed in desperation. This, this is grammatically ambiguous because it could either be we it could either be the sentence we prayed every prayer in desperation which is on its face not true unless you take a very 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 um i think contrived interpretation so it's not true that i pray every prayer in desperation sometimes i pray in uh, gratitude sometimes i pray in surety and not in in desperation or fear or doubt um there, uh, there is a sense in which i am consistently desperately in need of Christ's intercession on my behalf because I am a sinner and I can't approach God directly. Um, but this is grammatically ambiguous because it could be um, it, it could be that we prayed every prayer in desperation or it could be what I think it's meant to be, which is a relative clause. And every prayer which we prayed in desperation with the relative particle being omitted there, uh, which means... All of these songs which we prayed in fear, all of these prayers which we offered in desperation, which is not describing all of my prayers in a certain way, but saying those ones which were particularly difficult for me will be worth it. And I think that's what he means, but that's not what the text says. Here's another example of grammatical um, failure in this song, if I may. And I don't, I don't mean I don't say this because I'm arrogant about grammar, but it's just it's a shame to see this in a song. Um, you hear this a lot. This was in the form of her standing face to face with he who died and rose again. Now, what, what has happened here is that the, um, pronoun he, which in its objective case would be him, has been used in its subjective case where the objective case is necessary. So if I were to say standing face to face with him, you would say, okay, great. But if I said standing face to face with he, 
you would say, Tyler, what are you saying? Why are you talking like this? That doesn't make any sense. But for some reason, when we have this phrase, he who died and rose again, people are afraid to use him. So, so grammatically correct, the sentence should be standing face to face with him who died and rose again, because him would be the object of that preposition. But we just have this hypercorrection that's blaringly obvious. You hear this a lot in sentences like, oh, this is a gift from my wife and I. Yeah. Whereas it, it, gr if you were to be grammatically consistent with the, how the rest of the English language operates, it would be this is a gift from my wife and me. Because you would say this is a gift from me, this is a gift from my wife, I put them together, it's a gift from my wife and but me. But people were told in school you that don't you say, always say and I, yes. right? And so people just say it all the time. Exactly. But in this verse, uh, to get back to what's happening in the second verse, it's not clear whether I prayed every prayer in desperation or every prayer which I prayed in desperation. So I, just to put a bow on the grammar thing, the way that I, maybe because I'm used to working with Latin and long sentences with lots of clauses, the way that I read the grammar here is, and every prayer, we prayed in desperation, and then you go to, we'll see that it was worth it. So the we'll see that it was worth it is the kind of the main clause that describes all the other clauses. So, so the it, the content of it, is the preceding two lines. Yeah. In every prayer yeah. and the and songs then, of faith. So there's like this list of clauses, and then they all tie to, in the end, we'll see that it was worth it. And the it is every prayer, the it is the songs of faith, which again, grammar is still problematic here, but it, I think that at least for purposes of comprehension, yeah. helps us understand what he's saying. That makes sense to me. But the my question still is, and I don't think this is answered, is, is this a pie chart of all of my prayers that is worth it? Or is it the sliver in the pie chart that represents those prayers which happen to be prayed in desperation? It's the sliver. Okay, so the sliver of the prayers and the yeah. sliver of the songs? Yeah. Those are worth it? Yep, I think that's what he's saying. Okay. I think. But it, you, you, but I'm making a guess. Sure. Because you can't officially, totally tell. Can we? Um, can I say something beyond the grammar at <laughs> yeah, this point? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so as much as I really don't like the first three lines of this, I do like the final line. When he returns to wipe away our tears. Now, chronology, yes, uh, slightly off. But in Revelation 21.4, it explicitly says that God will wipe away all our tears. Like Revelation emphasizes the personal touch of God, as it were, wiping away our tears. And it really is a contrast to the ways in which we often abstract God or in, in a desire to understand his holiness, which is good, he's other than us and he's above us and beyond us. Yet at the same time, he is intimate with us. And I think this line accurately captures the sentiment in Revelation 21.4, which is this personal and intimate action that God takes. Like God, and the contrast in Revelation couldn't be clearer. Like this is the God who's judging everybody, who's, you know, treading the grapes of wrath, who's marching in on the white horse. Like this is this is the God whom the angels have been throwing their you know, have been have been singing to, and the and the elders have cast their crowns before, and all this, and yet 
he wipes away every tear, like like this nice intimate moment. So um, so Wickham Wickham is good on this in this song, mm-hmm. if you ask me. And on that day we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith with one voice a thousand generations sing worthy is the lamb who was slain and on that day we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith with one voice a thousand generations sing worthy is the lamb who was slain forever he shall reign Again, I do like this verse. The reason I like it is because it gives a sense of what heaven is about, more so than some of the previous verses do. So one of the things that we say in Christian circles sometimes when we talk about heaven is, oh yeah, I can't wait to meet Paul, or I can't wait to see my great-great-grandfather who was a missionary somewhere what I like about this song is it acknowledges that there are the, going to be those people there, that there's going to be Christians from all sorts of different generations. But we are going to join with them, and we are going to stand beside them, and then we are going to sing to God. So, in other words, we're not going to be face-to-face with them. In other words, the goal of heaven is not to have some awesome conversation with Zwingli or John Calvin or something or, you know, Thomas Aquinas or Augustine. Our goal is to see them and join with them mm-hmm. and marvel at the fact that all of these people are focused on God. And we're going to join them in that, right? And I, yeah, and maybe to. Uh, elaborate on this point a little bit. The best theologians make it their life's work to show what we could see if we could see God more clearly, right? And so, in heaven, if you went to Aquinas and said, can you explain to me God's righteousness? It's it's still a little bit difficult. He would point you in the direction <laughs> of the throne and say, go look, go see it for yourself. The, right. Their whole work is designed to yeah. get you to see God more clearly. I, I, I agree with you, and I am not going to go into why this grinds against me, but join the resurrection. Okay, yeah, sure, fine. As opposed to we are resurrected. Yeah, yeah, sure. Do we have to say it in this it's way? It's a weird way to say it. I get it. Yes, that's is true. Is the resurrection already happening, and then, you know, we... Yeah hop on the train as it were it's true. it is unnecessarily poetic to the point where it makes something which could be simple just slightly awkward i think what's happening here is that we are coming up against the christian language as it were yeah so the english language as it's used in christian circles and so i can say things like we join the resurrection Everyone knows what I mean, and it doesn't matter exactly how I've communicated that idea for the purposes of the language. But in real terms, obviously, it does matter a lot. That's all I'll say about we join the resurrection. All right. Then we come to the outro.
So let it be today, we shout the hymn of heaven. With angels and the saints, we raise a mighty roar. Glory to our God, who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy is the Lord. So again, I think another decent-ish part of the song, we've got this idea that we're not in heaven yet. Sorry, is it one more thing? Yeah, go ahead. The That verse that I just read, verse 3, again, what it's done is we were we were just in heaven, and now we're popping back yeah. to the second, yeah, chronology. to the to resurrection of yeah. the dead. That's fine, but why? <laughs> why, yeah. why does this keep happening? Um, okay, yeah. excuse me. Okay, so, well, okay, the, the re- what I think is happening, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, when we think about heaven now, so we're in the now, we think about the future, we're not in the future yet. So what is the right response to thinking about heaven? Is the right response, for example, to just say, well, I want to get there, I'm not there, so I should commit suicide, right? I should go stand in front of a train so I can get to heaven because it's going to be awesome. Like, that's one, that would not be an irrational response, it would be wrong uh, and unbiblical, but there's a kind of logic to that, right? If heaven is such a great place, maybe I should go there right now. Um, But of course, God has purposes for us now. Um, and it's his timing that we need to respect. Um, and not, his commandments yeah, not to do things like that. Exactly. That would be murder. Um, we're not to murder even ourselves. Um, so for many reasons, that's a that's a wrong view, but there's a kind of logic to it. Um, another kind of logical inference of the idea that, um, well, heaven is in the future. It's going to be awesome. It's way better than now. Okay, I can't bring myself there what I should do is just dwell on this and just kind of think about heaven and just kind of go live in a monastery somewhere and I'll just dwell on heaven because right now pales in comparison to it. What's the point? Um, I'll just meditate on heaven until I'm there. That would also be a wrong response. Um, What I like is that in this verse, I think we get what is the correct response, which is, okay, heaven is going to be awesome, but what does that mean for me right now? It means I should reflect on how good God is, and I should obey Him now. And that includes many things that aren't mentioned in this song, but among them, it includes praising God now, right? Um, it, it means heaven is, is going to be so great and wonderful, that tells us how good God is, that it tells us that He keeps His promises, it tells us that we're going to meet Him face to face, it tells us that we truly are redeemed and that our um, our our souls are secure in him. So, so let's praise him for that now. That is something we can do right now that is in line with his commands. We can praise him right now. And so he says, so let it be today we shout the hymn of heaven. With angels and saints, we raise a mighty roar. So these are, he's saying like, actually like our, we should praise in the boldest way we can, the loudest way we can right now, because God is going to, because heaven's going to be awesome. So I think this is a a good sentiment, a good reflective exercise. You know, he's right to say this. It's my thought. Really, there isn't anything in this outro that I would take issue with. No. All the constituents are very good. And as you've said, it it goes from talking about the future to talking about what we do now in order to prepare for that and 
celebrate that. And obey in the present. Colin, what would you say then uh, as we wrap up here in uh, by way of conclusion? So I've kind of given a sense of my thoughts. There's a lot that's good in this song. I like the intimacy. I like the connections to biblical language and revelation. I don't like the fact that he's kind of all over the place. I don't like the fact that he's unnecessarily poetic and clunky. And it seems like the song is half... It seems like the song is at least in part more about itself being beautiful than God being beautiful in heaven. Uh, it gets really bad in that in that second verse. I mean, that is that second verse is just atrocious. I could, would never want to sing that verse. Uh, just just pr- praising myself for having. Yeah, I've already explained why it was terrible. I no thank you. Uh, so you know this song for me. We've had a lot of songs in this third series where there was just a lot of vagueness, but there wasn't anything actually wrong with the song, and so we kind of gave them threes or whatever. This song, I think that verse is too much for me. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any summary thoughts that are different than mine, I guess? Oh, to speak a word of thoughtful language. Air about a song... Not tongue in cheek. No, I'm just kidding. No, you've I'm just done trying it. No, to you're find a really perfect. contrived way to no, say what absolutely I think. perfect, right? You you could have said a simple thing, you, but you said it in an, just a, too much. Yeah, most of the song is very good. Some of the song is very bad. That's how I would sum it up. Okay, Colin, what'd you give this song? I'm going to give this song two out of five fences around a church, which pushes to the edge of a commandment that we've had on this show, which is not to go into contemporary uh, issues. But since this is the song from Canada, um, I was thinking about why is this song so popular in Canada? And my thought is maybe it's popular because in the video, it actually shows Christians gathered in a church. And uh, in Canada, I just want to say that i um praying for and certainly... Um, yeah, you know, the situation in Canada in the church has been a rough one recently. Um, and so, you know, even having some churches with fences around them so that people could not enter them. So slightly serious and somber uh, rating, but just wanted to take the time to let Can- Canadians know that um, the, the your brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ elsewhere are praying for you. Lighten the mood, Tyler. Yeah. (laughs) What is your rating? The second verse bothered me. It it, uh, ground against me, I guess you could say. um, Graded against me. But it was not something that would sink this song. Because uh, I'm willing to interpret it as all of the suffering that we experience. Yes, that is focusing on our suffering. Um, It will be worth it when Christ comes again. there are, there are some problems with that. I understand that completely. But it doesn't sink the song for me, and I'm going to give it three out of five white T-shirts. Of course. Now, why would I give it three out of five white T-shirts? Because he's wearing two white T-shirts. He's wearing one white T-shirt on top of another white T-shirt of a different size so that you can see the other one poking out from underneath the one that he's wearing on top. And it reminded me of this trend in the 90s where people yep. would wear long sleeve shirts 
under their t-shirts so that you had this kind of, you had essentially two different t-shirts on, uh, and this is what it is now, but instead of having a long sleeve one that is a different color than the short sleeved one, you just have two white ones on over each other. Um, so having been a teenager in the nineties, there was also a trend of wearing two shirts, two t-shirts. This was also a fairly common thing. Like I did it. So you would wear yeah, a T-shirt that was slightly smaller and then a little slightly larger T-shirt over it so that it showed through it. It almost look, made it look like um, a border on your sleeves and on your neck. And then people would wear these stupid, like, uh, at least on the West Coast, we would wear these, like, little, like, hemp necklaces and stuff <laughs> with them. Did you have the... Um I don't know, the seashell necklaces or Those whatever. kinds of things, yeah. yeah. I didn't own one, but people wore them. Nice. It was terrible. Did you have a faux hawk as a child? No, no, no. Oh, I wasn't okay. allowed to do anything with my hair that wasn't pretty standard. All right. So center part? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Center, center part. Really? Oh, I did wow. the center okay. part. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, there's also an interesting thing. I thought about making this an evaluation criterion, but I decided against it. But it's very odd. At the very end of... I won't even start at the very end. The music video, I encourage our listeners to watch it because the worshipers are in a ring around Phil Wickham, who is in the middle of this ring. And they're raising their hands. And obviously everyone is emotively worshiping, which I have nothing against. But it all seems very Phil Wickham oriented yes. because they're all pointed in his direction. Yeah. And then at the end, this I'm, I'm certain that this was an accident. I'm certain all the intentions are pure. But at the end, it's so odd because the camera zooms out. You have this ring around Phil Wickham, and then he is walking toward the camera with his arms at his side, and above him is a picture of Christ the Good Shepherd holding a sheep. Um, and it just it looked very odd because I he uh, I, I won't say more about what the implications of that could be, but I I just thought it was odd yeah. how Phil Wickham centric the music video was. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning into the Worship Review. We are very grateful to have you. Please tune in next week where we will discuss the music that is popular in your favorite East African country, Uganda. All right, take care. You've been listening to the Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at Anchor FM slash The Worship Review and Patreon.com slash The Worship Review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.